When the Trump administration moved two small agencies of the Agriculture Department to Kansas City, Missouri, it lit a storm of opposition. The agencies have more or less settled down, still in Kansas City, but the move remains an object of study. Now the Government Accountability Office has laid out what it calls leading practices for relos. The GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment, Steve Morris, joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin with more. And you issued a report just kind of reiterating aimed at Agriculture Department on what the leading, if not best, practices are for relocations. But this could have been aimed really across the government, I would say. Yeah, I mean, any time that the agency is uh, in the process of relocation, you know, that would be a subject of potentially a subject of our review, Tom, you're right. But in this case, we did look at specifically at USDA and their relocation of a couple of their research agencies, uh, namely ERS and NIFA. Right. And you said that they didn't totally ignore what are good practices for relocation or reorganizing agencies, but they didn't follow all of the best practices or all of the leading practices. What are a couple of things, just to be positive, that they did right? So, Tom, yeah, let me give you a little bit of context in terms of what we looked at. I think it's going to kind of frame the issue here. But, you know, we were asked to take a look at USDA's relocation of of ERS and NIFA to their research agencies. And one of the key points we found is that, you know, there was a pretty significant impact in terms of its people and its productivity. So following the, the 2019 relocation, you mentioned that the agencies were fairly small, and they were. They had about 300 people each. But about a year and a half in, they ended up losing about half of their staff. Coinciding with the loss of staff, uh, ERS's productivity uh, really declined. You know, they produced a lot fewer reports. You know, NIFA was also impacted. You know, they took a lot longer to process the grants that they're responsible for. So significant impacts in terms of people and products. The good news is by the end of 2021, the agencies had rebounded, both in terms of staff numbers and also in terms of productivity. So they were pretty much about where they were before the relocation. A couple of significant changes, though, worth mentioning. The composition of their staff changed dramatically. So prior to the relocation where you had the majority of, of staff in both agencies with more than two years experience, for example, a couple of years after the relocation, that pretty much switched. So in NIFA's case, um, you know, you had maybe about a quarter of the folks with two years of more experience and ERS, maybe about a third of their staff. So there was a, a very significant change in terms of the experience level of folks working at those agencies. Similarly, we saw a pretty drastic change in terms of the the ethnic composition of the staff. Uh, Just to give you an example, Tom, so in terms of African-American staff at NIFA, prior to the relocation, almost half of their staff were African-American. When we looked at it a couple years later, that percentage was less than 20%, and it was fairly similar at uh, ERS as well. So pretty dramatic changes in terms of the uh, experience level of staff and also the composition of their staff in terms of ethnicity. Coupled with the change in experience, you would probably expect to see this, but the percentage of folks uh, working at both agencies who are aged 40 or over also declined. So you had a much younger staff at both agencies as well. So that was something we wanted definitely to highlight uh, the impact on people and products. And that kind of leads us to that next issue you brought up about leading practices. We're speaking with Steve Morris, Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office. So a couple of factors they didn't really maybe count on or some effects that they didn't anticipate, which gets to the practices that they should have followed. Tell us more about those. 
Yeah, absolutely. We assess the agency's actions against what we consider leading practices anytime a department goes through any sort of reform things that they need to consider. And also, you know, practices they need to consider from a human capital perspective, right? You know, what if there's changes in composition, for example, how do you deal with that? So, you know, we took a look at the agency's uh, actions uh, and compared that to some of those leading practices. And, you know, in some cases, to USDA's credit, they did follow those actions. For example, the department did have and develop certain goals for the move, right? You know, one of the key ones was to recruit and uh, retain highly qualified folks, for example. So that's something that was stated, right? Part of the problem is that they didn't really have performance measures to kind of gauge their progress, right? So did they actually follow through on on some of the goals they had initially? You know, one of the things we pointed out that we thought was very significant is that, you know, anytime you do these sorts of reorganizations, you want to get people to buy in, right? The folks who are going to be most affected. In this case, it would be the staff working for the agencies. And and USDA, you know, kind of dropped the ball on that in terms of getting their input and buy-in for the move, which kind of hampered their efforts moving forward. You know, one thing we pointed out is, you know, if they would have queried their staff, they probably would have had a better sense of how many folks were actually going to make the move or not, right? And that would have informed the decisions as to, you know, some of the future uh, actions that we're going to take. So just an example of some of the things that USDA missed and um, things that we think they should do better in the future. Yeah, you don't want to take your people kicking and screaming with their heels dug in, even though you may have that legal authority. It's still not a good practice because you're not going to get the hearts. Only the bodies will go, but the hearts and minds may not be there. Exactly, Tom. And on the issue of racial diversity of the workforce, that's a tough one because you have to rehire, as you say, a lot of people left and they had to replace almost half their people in both cases. And you don't have quotas in the federal government, but yet you also want diversity. And how can agencies best approach that question? Well, that's a, it's a great question, Tom. And I think part of it is just kind of assessing where you are, right? The makeup of the staff for both agencies was very diverse before the relocation, and that's something that should have been considered moving forward in terms of hiring practices, et cetera, right? And it goes back to that first issue about just having a better understanding of what your people are planning to do in terms of the move. That could have helped inform, you know, some of those plans moving forward in terms of, you know, who, what, where, and the hire. So that that becomes an issue and something that the agencies really did not focus on. They didn't. One of the key practices, you know, we cite is having, you know, diversity sort of management plan, right? Kind of thinking through these issues and both agencies in this case didn't have that. So that creates challenges for them moving forward. And again, from our perspective, implementing some of those practices is going to help them with some of the ongoing challenges and, and also maybe could help them in the future if there is a, an additional relocation of agencies. And your recommendations, there's about eight of them, a long list, went to a different administration than the one that had initiated this change. Yet they're still all open. And the Biden administration has stated its commitment to empowering the federal workforce. So briefly, just give us the tone of the recommendations and what you expect from agriculture now that they have them. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Well, you know, as you mentioned, we did make eight recommendations. And and these kind of follow what I was mentioning about, you know, leading practices for reform and and human capital management. The good news here is that USDA agreed with the recommendations. So that's great. We have buy-in from the agency. They also noted their commitment to uh, address these recommendations in the future. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Again, we just issued this report a few months back and USDA is on board. So, You know, we'll keep checking to see how uh, the agency is doing in terms of implementation. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.